Well, it is the middle of August with everything that comes with it. Sticky weather, sleepy days. How many of you, like me, have, have two to three active mosquito bite situations going on right now? Ankles, right? Always well, one of my favorite things to do when the weather is warm <clears throat> is sit outside on my roof deck in my apartment in Philadelphia. And sometimes I read. More often than not, honestly, I'm a little lazier and I listen to podcasts. I was listening recently to one of my favorites. It's called Ask Science Mike. It's a very nerdy podcast. Feel free to look it up if you're a nerd like me. He looks into the science behind all kinds of everyday different situations. And on this particular episode, he was doing an interview with some expert about parenting. Now, Mike, Science Mike, Mike McCard, is a middle-aged guy, and he himself has two daughters, one who is about elementary age and one who is maybe middle school age. And as they start getting into and talking about all the ins and outs of parenting, he finally kind of gets exasperated and says, gosh, you know, that's just parenting, though, isn't it? No matter what I do, they're going to have to go to therapy, and it's going to be my fault. <laughs> and I guess by illustration, he starts to tell a story from just the other day. He says, I was sitting in the living room earlier this week playing video games, playing Fortnite, one of those online video games, very popular right now. And he says, my older daughter comes into the room and she goes, hey, Dad, you got a fucking? And he says, well, um, honey, I'm ranked number eight in Fortnite right now. Can we just talk in a minute? And behind him, he said, I turn, I heard her turn and start to walk out the door. Saying, sure, I just wrote a song for you. <laughs> and he says, there it is. That's the story she'll tell about me in therapy. Now at least I know, right? So none of us can be a perfect parent, just like none of us can be perfect in general. That's not part of the seal, right, of being human. It's not part of the package we signed up for. But we can heal. We can repair. We can be in relationship with each other and restore what may be broken. And we can grow into new ways of being with each other. That's the subject of our Spirit Flips movie for today. Disney's Christopher Robin. A really delightful story that is definitely for adults just as much as it's for kids. I think more people told me they were seeing this movie this week than any other movie I've preached on in any summer of Spirit Quest. The movie begins with a brief recap of the story that most of us probably know. Young Christopher Robin, who lives with his family in Sussex, England, where he spends these long, meandering days, especially in the summertime, playing out in the woods behind his house with all of these stuffed toys. Piglet and Pooh, Roo, Rabbit, Tigger, Eeyore. All of these stuffed toys of his that become real friends, animated by nothing more than his youthful imagination. It's an instantly relatable way to enter a story. I think all of us remember back to some time in our childhood, whether for us it was a stuffed toy or a doll or a blankie, maybe. It's a pretty universal experience for kids 
to latch on to some object as an object of our love and to build a relationship with that object that helps us explore the world and make sense of it. It's the kind of fantasy play that helps us learn not just about the world around us, but also about who we are, about how we experience things and relate to people. The stories that we each told and played when we were little, they reflect the unique person that we were becoming that was forming and is still forming and is always forming within each of us. Now, Christopher Robin was forming as a pretty chill dude, I would say, right? Early on, as he's having one of his conversations with Pooh in the Hundred Acre Wood, Pooh asks him, Christopher Robin, what's your favorite thing to do? And Christopher Robin says, nothing. Nothing is my favorite thing to do. Because doing nothing leads to the very best something. It's one of those cute little pooisms, right? The ones we see on the internet sometimes with little poo cartoons. Doing nothing leads to the very best of something. It might sound silly or simple, but it's also poetic. And it's also good for us to remember, as we see in this movie, that those pooisms. Those are things that Christopher Robin said. Those are things that he taught to Pooh. That Pooh, whatever you believe Pooh is in this movie, right? A manifestation of Christopher Robin's inner child, a real stuffed bear that comes to life, who knows, right? But Pooh is reminding Christopher Robin of the thing that Christopher Robin taught him. Doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. What a beautiful statement about grace that is. That we don't need to do anything. Right? That we don't need to be special because there is a love so special that is accessible to us all, regardless of how special or not special we are. A beautiful statement about the way that the world works when we believe there is a love out there that is looking out for us. And maybe sending good things our way out of nothing. All of these characters, Pooh and Piglet and Eeyore and Tigger, and the stories that they share together are beloved so many of us because I think they point to that sense of peace we have. Maybe as a memory from our childhood, hopefully something that we know we can access now from time to time. The peace that we feel when we trust that the world around us is safe and creative. When we trust that we are loved and that good things are not only possible, but maybe even looking for us. Just maybe. But soon in this story we see the twists and turns that start to show up in Christopher Robin's life. Right? He can't be a child forever. He gets sent off to boarding school, where he learns pretty quickly that there are pretty harsh punishments for doing nothing. We're expected to be doing something, right? We see that he loses his father early on in his life. We see that after he graduates from school, he is sent off like so many men in his time to war. And while he meets a woman and falls in love and they have a child together, Madeline, 
She misses the first three years of her life fighting in that war. When the flashback scenes all come to an end and we pick up that story again, we're reintroduced to Christopher Robin as an adult man. Hugh McGregor, turns out, I know, right? An adult man who is past those losses and traumas in his life, but now has a job and a boss and a wife and a house and a child. As an adult, Christopher Robin is a less chill dude, for sure. We see him actually at one point hunched over his desk at home, working on something frantically, and his wife and his young daughter are in the next room playing music and dancing. And he gets up in the house and shuts the door and goes and sits back down, right? Not so chill anymore. We learn that growing up, Christopher Robin works in the efficiency department of the luggage department, of the luggage company that he has a job at, and he has been tasked specifically in his job with cutting costs in his department by 20%. We see that the stress is getting to him. His wife confronts him lovingly at one point. And she says, you know, you're less fun than you used to be. You don't laugh as much as you did. I'm worried about you. I'm worried that you're going to crack. You need to take more time away from your work. And I bet that we could all write the script for Christopher Robin's response, right? I have responsibilities. I have people depending on me. I have to work hard now so that we can be secure, so that we can get the best education for our daughter. And then we can enjoy ourselves, right? Later. I wish this part of Christopher Robin's life weren't so relatable, but of course it is as well. Somewhere along the way, he learned a new kind of story about how this world works and what the world had in store for him. A new kind of story about the kind of love that counts in this world. That's much less about grace or receiving and much more about what falls on our own shoulders that we have to make happen. It's a story he gets pretty caught up in. And it's also a story that we could probably write the script for. Love is looking out for yourself and those closest to you because nobody else is going to. Love is getting things set up well for your children because our society can't be trusted to. Love is sacrificing in the present because that's the only way we'll ever experience joy. We know those stories pretty well. And I wish that our world told us a louder story a story that was closer to what our hearts knew as children. Stories like love is enjoying every experience we can. Love is creating a world where ease and joy are not only for those closest to us. Love is being part of a society that puts such priority on nurturing our connections that we never have to fear for their scarcity. 
will be a very different world from the one we live in. I think it's the world that we all hope to create here. I think it's the world that we all carry somewhere in our hearts from maybe that more innocent time before we were taught a different kind of story about what really counts in love. All kinds of spiritual communities are often trying to create something like this, right, in different ways for sure, but we all have some kind of vision somehow of heaven or nirvana, a healed world to come along in the Jewish tradition, paradise in the Muslim tradition, a beloved community, some kind of vision of a world that looks much more like Christopher Robin's Hundred Acre Wood. Some kind of vision of a world where things don't have to be any harder than they need to be. Where we can enjoy the moments in their simplicity that are peaceful and good and do nothing and trust that maybe something beautiful will come. It's the core question in this movie. Can a grown-up Christopher Robin, can a grown-up you or me, still find it within ourselves to believe in that place? It's hard to do. Right? Nearly everything is working against us most of the time. There's a book I read when I was 14 years old. It peeled back some of the layers for me on why it is so hard as we grow up to believe that that kind of a world is possible. I didn't expect to read this book at 14. It's a book by perhaps not every 14-year-old girl's favorite author, this guy. The 19th century German sociologist Max Weber, of course, right? My uh, summer before 10th grade. How many of you have kids who have summer reading right now? How many of you are kids who have summer reading right now? Thank you, Joy. Yeah. So uh, I did what any self-respecting 10th grader would do. I looked at the list of all the books. I was supposed to pick one for the summer and write a book report. I went to the library. I looked for the shortest one. <laughs> this guy went out. 132 pages. A book called... The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. <laughs> Not my wisest move, I gotta say. Right? There were books about like European fashion and music. No, I didn't choose that. I chose The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. It was dense. It was translated from the original German. I don't recommend you all run out and buy it. But I have to say, looking back, it actually ended up being one of the most influential things that I ever read. I think especially because I read it so young. His argument, essentially, is that capitalism took over as a dominant economic system, especially in the Protestant parts of the world. Because Protestantism laid a really perfect spiritual foundation in people's lives and people's hearts for the ethic of capitalism. Now, if you think about it, right, most major religious systems, Catholicism, Buddhism, Islam, the ultimate devotion in those systems is expressed by removing yourself from the world. Those, those religious traditions have nuns and they have monks and sheikhs and uh, mystics and poets and contemplatives 
They have these traditions where people live aesthetic, frugal lifestyles, right? They withdraw from wealth. But in American Protestantism, there are no monks or nuns, right? You ever met a Presbyterian nun? Baptist monk? No. Protestant high priests in America look a little more like this guy. Dolostin. He's someone we all know. Now, Dolostin is just a modern expression of this. But Weber argues that this goes back to the Puritan roots of our country. The Puritans who founded America, as we know it, had a particular strain of Calvinist Protestant belief. In their belief system, God was so powerful, so in control of everything in the world and of our destiny, that God only knew who would go to heaven and who would go to hell. Right? If God is that powerful, how could anything we do make a difference in our lives? They believed in a system of thought called predestination. And so people living their actual lives had this anxiety, this core anxiety, if they were believers in this Puritan Protestant Calvinist system, wondering, am I chosen? Am I part of the elect? In the culture that developed around that belief system 300, 400 years ago, part of the idea was that living well and living in reflection of what the church taught would be proof, right? That you must have been one of the good ones. That you must have been one of the ones that God had chosen. And so living well and working hard and being rewarded for it became a sign that you were among the ones that God had blessed and favored. It is a deep, I think there's a language word for this, it does something in your mind, let's put it that way, right? So hard work and earning lots of money gets tangled up with morality. It becomes a way to calm that fear about your deeper worth, your worth before God. Now, whether or not you follow all the history, I think we can probably resonate with what it means for us today. That in our culture, we deeply fear that our failure in work our failure in money, our failure to support ourselves, means we're fundamentally not okay. We're fundamentally not worthy. It's funny because in the Christian New Testament, Jesus preaches the exact opposite message, right? There's a story that shows up in three out of four Gospels, so you know it's good, right? where the rich young man who hopes to follow Jesus shows up and says, Jesus, how can I know the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells him to sell all of his possessions and come and follow me. And the rich young man goes, ah, okay, I'll get back to that. He walks away. And Jesus, talking with his disciples, and by the way, they're all shocked by this. They're all surprised. He says, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
It's in three Gospels, Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 18. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, not easy, is what he said, than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's not a quote you see on a lot of Bible inspirational calendars. It's a hard one to make sense of. In fact, I did a little experiment. I really wanted to see how resistant are we to talking about this particular teaching of Jesus in the New Testament in America. If you have friended me on Facebook or Instagram, which you're all welcome to do, by the way, I won't friend you, just friend me. You know that I discovered a new app this week that matches the photos you take on your phone with Bible quotes and turns them into a little meme that you can share online. And so the experiment I ran was to see if I could get this app to come up with the camel needle quote, right? I tried the money bag emoji. That didn't work. That's not what I'm I'll give them that, right? That's, that's a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed from Proverbs 11. Okay, I'll give you that. So I tried a photo of a camel. Thought that was an easy one. But no, that's something about sheep that's not even the same as a camel. And so I thought, okay, this is the real test. I googled kids' Bible illustrations, and I found a picture of a camel with a needle. Come on. Ephesians, not even a gospel. I gave them that one. We could agree, right? So clearly we as a culture are avoiding this Bible verse. It was not programmed into that app. The algorithm would have figured that one out. Why do we avoid it? Well, I think, I know for me, when I first read it, my mind jumped to a conclusion that I wonder if we all jumped to. We worry that this is Jesus teaching that wealthy people are beyond salvation, are bad, are evil somehow. But there are a lot of scholars who've read this passage. And there are a lot of people like me and like many of you who are universalists, who know that that's the wrong question, who don't believe in a heaven or a hell. I think what Jesus is saying in this passage is simply that golden handcuffs are still handcuffs. That if we feel trapped by our money or our possessions, such that we can't imagine giving them up even in pursuit of something we really, really want, we really long for, then we are still captive. Then we cannot connect to the world or to ourselves and experience the kingdom of God, the full potential of peace and heaven and this life. If we think that the security blanket of wealth is the answer, that we can rely on that instead of love, we will not be able to find our way to that place that lives inside our heart, the hundred acre wood, the kingdom of God. Ultimately, we can't protect or invest our race security for ourselves or for our children. And the world may tell us that work and wealth are our most reliable security blanket that can save us. But the truth is that manufacturing or attempting to control our own 
salvation is not possible. Because the world is just too interdependent and connected to that. The way to find safety and love, as risky as it might be, is actually to open up our hands to release whatever false idols or stories control us. To open to our curiosity and our imagination. And to trust the least controllable or predictable thing that we know. But the thing that we know deep down really counts. Which is love. How many of you have seen um, It's a Wonderful Life? That 1946 Christmas movie. It's almost everybody. I am going to spoil it. I'm sorry. You've had like 80 years to see this movie. (laughs) At the end of It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart's character, George Bailey. George Bailey, who ran the town savings and loan for decades, but is now threatened with closing, and it has torn him up so much that he has considered ending his own life. At the end of that movie, consumed by his fears and his failure in the things that the world says really counts, convinced that it made his life worthless, he ends up standing in his living room, surrounded by his family and by all the people he's ever helped. And all of the care and generosity that he's shown in his whole life comes back to him as people show up in droves to give him gifts, to help him receive the salvation that he needs in that moment. And what did he say? I'm the richest man in the world. Now, in the endings of both of these films, It's a Wonderful Life and Christopher Robin, we still live in the real world. George Bailey is standing in front of a pile of money that is saving his ass in real time, right? And he says that. When he says he's the richest man in the world, though, we know that the money is not what he's talking about. Christopher Robin finds a way to save his hide in a very real way at the end of this movie. But we can tell that by the end of the movie, that's not the part of his life that holds a grip on his heart anymore. For both men, none of that real-world support showed up in a way that either of them would ever have planned or engineered it. It happened when they lost and let go and opened up to what life had to give them. When Christopher Robin gives his wife that speech about sacrifice and responsibility, she comes back at him by reminding him gently but pointedly Your life is now. Hi, I'm your wife, right? It's happening right in front of you. So whatever your days are like right now, please don't forget that this is your life. It's happening now. And it's worth thinking carefully about what we want to make count. And whether we're willing to be a little broken and a little lost, and a little vulnerable, in order to be open to some kind of unexpected love, 
some version of love that may not provide you with the solution that you've imagined or planned or the exact life that you've thought. But a love that counts and is very real. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Holy presence in our lives, God of each of our hearts, great mystery that holds something for us in the future and we don't know what it is. May we remember that the life in front of us is worth living, that whether it measures up to what we hope or whether it falls abysmally short, that these are the days we have that these are the people we're with, and that this moment is not promised to us. So may we live in a spirit of humility and openness, that there may be beautiful things even more good and wonderful than we can imagine coming our way. Amen.